Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Fred, it's great to have you on the show. Michael, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, it is Super Bowl fever time, and we have the guy that brought the Super Bowl to Indianapolis, so it seems like the perfect conversation to be having this weekend. So, Fred, I'm obviously going to ask you the most important question, which is how did you keep the Colts in Indianapolis? Well, that's kind of a long story, Michael. I'm not sure how much detail you want, but, you know, the fact that we even got the Colts here in Indianapolis was uh, a historical accident, really. Um, um, Bob Ursay was looking to get out of Baltimore, and, and uh, I suppose it was more than an accident because our forward-thinking mayor, Mayor Bill Hudnett, had built a quote-unquote convention center expansion that looked an awful lot like a modern NFL football stadium. So we were, we were ready to go. When, uh, when the opportunity struck, we were prepared, and uh, they popped the team right here in the middle of, of NFL country. Um, our Indianapolis is really considered a market for Cincinnati and St. Louis and Nashville. Yes. Chicago and Green Bay and Cleveland. And so the NFL wasn't really that happy the Colts ended up here because uh, we kind of fractured that market. And um, to make a long story short, the uh, city had guaranteed a certain level of revenues for the team as a patch uh, work uh, solution to keep them in Indianapolis. When, when my guy was elected mayor, we were stuck with this deal and uh, we decided to really keep the Colts here. We need to generate revenues by building new stadiums. We were in the unique position of the city wanting the stadium as opposed to the team wanting the stadium. Yes. We persuaded the team that, uh, that the stadium made sense for them and, and uh, worked through all the legislative and, and other requirements, which uh, could take more than time than we have to, to share. But we basically did a new deal based on the stadium that uh, enabled the Colts to stay and you know, ushered in the, the Manning era and a Super Bowl championship. And, and there's a real point of pride for our community. Well, you make it sound easy and you're being a bit modest here because you know, when you watch an NFL game, you don't understand all the pieces that are moving in the background to create a franchise. And we talk about redeveloping the stadium, which is a huge investment. How do you convince the city to take this bet? Yeah, it's interesting, Michael, because sort of implicit in your question is, 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 is why an NFL franchise is, is important. And for a small market like Indianapolis, I think it's very important because whether you like it or not, um, an NFL team is sort of the coin of the realm that you consider a major league city. And, yes. and you know, L.A. doesn't need to prove that. And New York doesn't need to prove that. And Chicago doesn't need to prove that. But Indianapolis needs to prove that. And Jacksonville needs to prove that. And maybe St. Louis needs to prove that. And, and so the stakes were high. For Indianapolis, I'm taking a huge step back by being perceived as losing the team. Um, and like I alluded to earlier, in most uh, situations, the team is really demanding the new stadium. Um, but in our situation, the, the, the team was very happy with the arrangement they had to just get checks uh, to guarantee, at their guaranteed revenue level. Yes. And it was the city that really wanted to build a stadium. And for us, it was like a new town square. You know, For us, it was much bigger than just the Colts. And, and, and to be politically palatable, frankly, it had to be bigger than just the Colts. So we build in a guarantee of, of uh, 
a lot of your listeners may be aware that we we host the NCAA Final Four more than any city in the country because we like to think we do it best, and we have an agreement to do that with the NCAA in Lucas Oil Stadium where the Colts play. The Colts play there. Our expanded uh, convention center hosts uh, conventions there. Um, it's it's owned by the city, and again, I think it's, it serves to really be our town square. So it was a, a win-win because it was not only good for the Colts and keep the Colts, but it became a very important piece of city-controlled infrastructure. That's a great answer, and I love that answer because what you're telling me, and when I just bring it out for the audience, is that Indianapolis wants to be seen as a city that's not losing its capability, for lack of a better word, and to have an NFL team playing in Indianapolis, it means during NFL season is basically an ad campaign for Indianapolis. Everybody knows Indianapolis is still a major city and it has the infrastructure to attract a major team. But the point is, it's a calling card that Indianapolis still has a future. Yeah, Michael, that's exactly right. I mean, I know you have listeners all over the world and a lot of people may not be uh, familiar with uh, Indianapolis. To the extent they are, it's probably because they know the Colts. Yes. They know Larry Bird and they may know Reggie Miller. Uh, yeah. Our, our identity is really tied to sports. And, and Michael, that's not an accident. Um, we have very few natural attributes in Indianapolis. We are not in the mountains. We are, yes. not, on a, we are not on a beach. Um, we, are, we are in the middle of a prairie. And so thankfully, 30 or 40 years ago, um, our city leaders said, we, we've got to create our own natural resource, if you will. To be a bit of an oxymoron. And sure. our our resource became we're going to be the amateur sports capital of the world. And we're going to attract uh, national governing bodies and we're going to uh, 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 have uh, without peer facilities to host major events. And we're going to become an event city. We're going to build our downtown that's very connected with bars, restaurants, um, hotels, event venues. We've got a world class auditorium world-class uh, basketball arena, world-class football arena. And if we're known for anything, it is being an event sports city. And we are known to a certain extent worldwide for that very thing. It is who we are. So if we lost the Colts, it would be devastating that reputation. And, 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 and on the positive side, by pursuing and hosting the Super Bowl as a, as a small market northern city and pulling that off, I think, universally in a positive way, that was a real shot in the arm for us because we could go to the pharmaceutical company or the optometrist convention or the or the gamer convention and say, if we can host the Super Bowl and knock it out of the park, we, we can host your event and your attendees will have an incredible time. This is very fascinating because in my previous life, I used to be a strategy partner in management consulting. And I have worked with cities and countries where we would develop a strategy for how the city should brand itself, how it should grow itself. The nodes of investment should be be boosting investment in education, in biotech and so on. But I've never heard a city which has purposefully decided to go after athletics and has done it so well. It's almost as if you've got Vegas, which is known for partying, and then you've got Indianapolis, which has decided it's gonna stake itself around athletics. And the rationale makes a lot of sense to me because if you look at other spheres where you could compete, it's hard to do that where other cities have already picked up and become associated with a certain brand. So it's almost as if yourself and the other civic leaders picked this critical part and you knew that you have to keep the cults in because that's your calling card. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I did think, um, and Mayor Peterson, who was my uh, 
principle. Didn't think we could really lose the Colts and uh, and 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 maintain our sports strategy, or at least effectively maintain our sports event strategy. And you you were right on it, Michael. All that stuff really led it to us. Interestingly, and this is kind of inside baseball, but since we're talking about it a little bit, the real impetus for this was uh, Congress in the uh, late '60s, early '70s started to deregulate uh, the governance of amateur sports, which gave uh, uh, it, it, uh, entrance into the market, as it were, uh, opportunities to take it away from Colorado because it was really focused. Yes. So, so really Indianapolis used a change of federal legislation as the impetus to say, hey, look at us. We're in the middle of the country. We're very accessible. You know, later in post 9-11, it became a calling card that we were perceived as a safe inland um, uh, location, um, fairly inexpensive, um, very accessible. And we literally built our downtown around being an event center. And, and I don't know if you've been able to ever be here, Michael, but when people come here, uh, they are, they're blown away uh, and have a great, great experience. And, and we're even realizing that uh, we've been a leader, as you may know, in, in the post pandemic or what will hopefully be soon characterized as a post-pandemic era of hosting the entire NCAA basketball tournament. 64 teams were in a bubble here in Indianapolis. We pulled off the entire thing. And I'd suggest to you, A, I don't think there's another city in the country that the NCAA would trust that event to. And B, I don't think there's another city in the country with the event experience and the credibility to pull that off the way we did. Well, I've not had the distinct pleasure of coming to Indianapolis, but you've already sold me on it because I need to see this case study in action. But I want to go back to what you said. This was driven by a change in legislation. And there were a group of civic leaders who had the foresight to think about how do we use this legislation to build a strategy for the region? Yes, sir. I think, I suppose I hadn't really thought about it this way, but in a way it, it ties into the whole premise of, of, of the book I recently wrote, Making Your Own Luck. And, and yes. the idea is luck isn't this happenstance, random lightning bolt, um, yes. although people that tend to not be lucky like to think of it as happenstance, right? It's more like a defensive mechanism to say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not lucky. And so I don't, I don't own that or account for that. But in my world, making your own luck is where preparation meets opportunity. You know, like yes. Arnold Pop said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I, I suppose Indianapolis was that way, okay? They, they, the city was prepared. We were, we were looking for a strategy. Um, we, we, had a, we had a really good partnership between government and, um, and, the, and the private sector. And the opportunity was federal government just changed the way amateur sports are governed. We declared ourselves the amateur sports capital way before we had any right to say that. Yes. Very aspirational, but we, we said it as a descriptor. And, you know, nothing succeeds like success. We started attracting events, and there were key events like hosting the Pan American Games and, yes. and uh, bringing the Colts to town. And, and I won't bore your listeners with detail, but, but we were able to um, be ready. And then when the opportunity presented itself, uh, we were able to exploit it. Well, first, I must correct you on that. I don't think it's boring to listeners to understand the mechanics of how leaders make decisions that lead to an outcome they wanted. Because here's a situation where there's a city that it's basically not yet a center for sports, but it's created this vision of what it wants to achieve. It's made it its identity by incentivizing businesses to be aligned behind civic leadership. And it goes through these steps. 
because the first few events Indianapolis must have hosted could not have been significant, but it did it to lay the infrastructure, lay the groundwork to test and see whether this could be done. And I'm sure hosting the Super Bowl was the culmination of that. It didn't just happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we, you know, you, 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 uh, you describe that as if you actually knew exactly what happened because that's the way it worked. We, we hosted the summer sports festival, this obscure thing that had been sort of a minor league yeah. deal. Uh, it came here and we knocked it out of the park um, and uh, just kind of overdid it and, and really, I think, impressed amateur sports leaders from around the world so that when the, when the uh, um, Pan American Games in the mid 80s um, had not one, but two premier cities, if you will, step away. I think Rio de Janeiro was one and another uh, major uh, city in, in our um, hemisphere uh, stepped out. Um, they asked Indianapolis, you know, at the last minute that mm -hmm. these things go, what post it. And, and, and it was really on this, it was on the strength of that summer sports festival. And we did. Um, and that was probably the, the turning point, the tipping point, as Gladwell would probably say that when we hosted the Pan American Games and killed it, that just really created a lot of momentum for us. That became your initial calling card, which got you to bigger events. So the plan to bring the Super Bowl to Indianapolis, what is the thinking behind that? So um, when we pursued the uh, stadium, um, the NFL generally rewards cities that step up and build stadiums um, with hosting a Super Bowl which is awesome. And we never promised that as part of it. You can only imagine the, the detailed um, yes. campaign we had to have to get the legislation and, and revenues that we needed. Um, and we tied it in with the, uh, with the um, uh, NCAA and we tied it in with our hospitality industry. You know, we had, we had doormen in their doormen coats and, and maids in their maid outfits, um, 400 of them in the general assembly saying, these people's jobs depend on you voting yes on the stadium, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, we never promised the Super Bowl, said it was a possibility. As soon as we got the stadium done, we set about going after the Super Bowl. And the wind at our back was, you know, we built a stadium, but the wind at our face was we're a small market and we are a cold uh, city. And, the, and generally the Super Bowl is not in cold, uh, yes. small cities. Um, Atlanta, believe it or not, which is not a northern city in my book, uh, hosted the Super Bowl and had an ice storm. So that kind of double question, what the heck do we want to go to Indianapolis for? Um, but to make a fairly long story, and I'll tell you this brief aside, um, I've always been a staff guy, or always had been a staff guy. I was a staff guy in politics. I was yes. a staff guy in government. I was a staff guy as a lawyer. As a lawyer, you're a staff guy. You're working on other people's dreams and companies and all that. And I was fine with that. I liked that. Um, and the mayor uh, asked me who ought to lead, a, lead the Super Bowl effort. And so I had a list of about eight local people that I thought had the chops to do this. And it's a big deal. You know, like Roger Penske led the effort to bring it to Detroit. That's the caliber of people we're talking about. So I meet with the mayor and a couple of people in his staff at a local restaurant and I lay out my people that I think would be good to do this and I excuse myself to go to the bathroom which was a big mistake because when I came back they were all sitting there smiling like Cheshire cats saying it's got to be you you got to do it and I'm like I, I don't have the chops to do that I've never done an external facing thing like that I, I I don't I don't think I can do that and the mayor said no you have to do it you've been doing all the grunt work behind the scenes I want you to do this 
And, uh, and I don't want to sound too self-laudatory, Michael, but sure. we put together an unprecedented bid. We raised $25 million in 45 days. The only city in the history of the Super Bowl to raise the money needed to put on the event before the event um, took place. Because I want to take off the table the issue of, are you guys a big enough city to raise the money to put on a great event? And money talks, right? And we know what walks. And, and I walked in the presentation with the owners with a stack of uh, letters yes. to $25. Um, now, I, I must admit, we didn't get the event that year because uh, in Dallas, um, Jerry World, which yes. outgunned us, got the event. But we got it the very next year um, under the new regime. And the things that we had put in place, raising the money in advance, creating a downtown Olympic Village type Super Bowl village um, is the way we, we did that. And, and the stakes were high because we needed to show what a great event city we were. And, uh, and, and I think we did. Okay, that's very fascinating. There's a lot of things to pick up, but I want to get into the mechanics a little bit here. Because this is about reviving a city and keeping it relevant. And right? that's the theme here. This is what you're doing. You want to make sure that your city where you grew up and you're part of it remains a dominant force in American culture, which is a very, very admirable thing to be doing. It all seems to be built around building the stadium, mixed use stadium that serves as an anchor to bring in sports. And you mentioned to me that this is owned by the city, which means the Colts are using it when they need to, but other events can use it as well, which is very different from the way other stadiums are built. Sometimes it's dedicated to one team and it's owned by that team. So this strategy, it seems to be anchoring Indianapolis as opposed to simply doing everything to bring in the Colts, but using it as a multi-use venue. That's very interesting. Was that the original thinking behind it? Yeah, it was Michael. It was uh, astute of you to, to, to point that out. I'll, I'll, you know, I, I hate to, I tend to give rambling answers so they had enthused about this, but I think one thing that's sort of interesting, at least to me, is um, the economics of this are that if, if you're in a small market, the team has all the leverage. Okay, because they can go somewhere yeah. else, they can go to a bigger city. If you're in a big city, the big city has all the leverage. So, so, so I've seen the analysis of all the lease deals in the NFL. And yeah. the most favorable to the teams are the big cities. And the ones that are the least favorable to the teams are the smaller markets. Because if the small markets want to play with the big boys, because there's just fewer people and fewer corporations and fewer you know, revenue sources, the city basically has to subsidize it somewhat. Yes. So, and we were no exception to that. Um, the Colts put $100 million in the stadium. It's probably a $600 million stadium. The city, as it were, through a variety of um, taxes and, and such, put the balance in. So, so we were prepared to do that and spend the political capital to do that. But a non-starter for me was, this wasn't going to be the Colts stadium. This was going to be the city stadium. Okay, boys, so we'll, we'll build a stadium. You'll be the primary client. You'll have a lot of favorable um, provisions in your lease because we want you to have the money to be a, a quality team. But we absolutely have to own the facility. It has to be a city facility. It has to be our new town square. And it's a revenue generator for us outside the Colts. So we'll have a Colts game, break it down, and put in you know 50 tons of dirt and have um, big truck races or motocross yes. races. You know, um, it's a it's a facility that's used, you know, almost almost every darn day for something or other, including civic stuff. We'll have the high school bands in there. We'll have the high school football championships in there. So it's 
it's truly a community amenity that uh, that transcends the cult, but is uh, the bedrock of Indianapolis defining itself as an event city. Yeah, this is very interesting. It seems like a very, very smart decision because if you look at any infrastructure in the world, the most important thing is capacity utilization. You've got to make sure that either you've got a few events at a very high price like Manchester United Stadium, or if you don't have a major anchor team, and I'm not saying that Indiana Colts are not a major anchor team, it's just that your market's very small, you've got to have high capacity utilization with many events running across the infrastructure, which is what you guys have done. And that's a very smart decision. So switching gears and going back to the um, Super Bowl. Now that you've reached that stage, what's next for building Indianapolis as an athletic center? Well, part of it, Michael, is just maintaining our preeminent position. You know, we continue to host Final Fours. Like I said, we hosted all uh, 64, 68 teams um, in, the, in the pandemic year. Uh, uh, as it were. Um, I'm not sure we'll host another Super Bowl, and I'm not sure we really need to. We got the one we got. Uh, we knocked it out of the park. And our bread and butter are these um, uh, repetition um, athletic events. I mean, for gosh sakes, we just hosted the uh, college football playoff, the first uh, northern city to mm-hmm. host college football playoff game, which is darn near as big a deal in terms of uh, spend and attendees as a Super Bowl and so we want to continue to be in that mix. We're getting ready to host the um, NBA uh, All-Star Game, which has gotten to be a really, really big deal. We, we're the, we're the, we're the uh, permanent host of the Big Ten Football Championship. We're a rotating host of Big Ten Basketball Championships. We host, um, I, I won't we'll get this exactly right, I think three of the six biggest annual conventions, like the firefighters, the gamers, um, they're, they're hosted here um, in Indianapolis. So, you know, we got to keep feeding the beast, which uh, kind of a side point to that I will mention is, and, and I think you'll be interested in this given your history working with cities. One of the things that was important to us was to create an economy that was a place-based economy, right? So some of us here in the Rust Belt still remember when, you know, a lot of our traditional bread and butter manufacturing companies yes picked up and moved to greener pastures or our financial companies got gobbled up by out of state. And so you're not dealing with the kindly old banker that you've known your whole life in Indianapolis. You're dealing with somebody in Charlotte or Chicago or, or New York. And, and one of, one of the things that we were very deliberate about was let's build, let's build our economy on something we own on our place, on our sports structures, on our hotels and, and, and walkway systems. And, and uh, downtown um, uh, quality of life museums and all that, and and that's a big deal because what we've built isn't going to get up and walk away because it's literally who we are. I like that. I haven't heard the term place-based economy before, but it actually makes a lot of sense because if I pass through the interesting points you brought out, whereby you're using the infrastructure you've built to serve the athletics community, and you're now serving all kinds of conventions. So you've got this asset base, which you've proven through athletics, but that asset base can be used for all kinds of conferences. So in a a sense, Indianapolis could, if it played its cards right, become a conference center like Vegas. Yeah, that's, you know, we compete with Vegas, Orlando, you know, um, Chicago, 
Um, now, you know, we're a different breed of cat, so uh, sometimes, you know, people want to be in Vegas or they want to be uh, in Nashville, but, but our, our uh, trade and convention space, connectivity, hotel rooms, um, headquarter hotels, you know, the, the currency of event planners, we are, we are very competitive. Your listeners would be surprised to know that, you know, we're probably one of the top 10 um, convention cities in America. That's quite impressive. So if you think about this, right, if that's a plan for Indianapolis, that must mean all of the thinking now is built around how do you sustain that infrastructure and keep your competitive advantage? Because COVID must have been pretty hard for Indianapolis. Events canceled, conferences canceled. How are you looking at the post-COVID era? I mean, assuming that's coming soon. What's the game plan there? Yeah, first, you're right. It was particularly devastating to us because we were all about, you know, uh, visitors. And there weren't yes. visitors um, there. Um, and you're right that it's about sustaining, right? So, so if you're, these conventions are businesses, Michael, right? So, yes. so the person runs uh, uh, the Performance Racing Institute, which is one of our biggest conventions. That's their business. And how do they make more money? By getting bigger, right? Getting more people. Well, if we want to keep it, we need more convention space. We need more hotel rooms. You know, so, so, so part of it is not being satisfied, helping educate the public on why we need another headquarters hotel, you know, why we need another convention center expansion. Because like in a lot of businesses, if you're not growing, you're falling behind. And, and once PRI goes somewhere else, man, you don't want to be in that position. You, you don't want to ever let them go. So you're right. You're right on it. We, we have to keep um, growing so that, the, so that the people that rely on us can keep growing. Whether it's a whether it's a convention, private business, if you will, or a major uh, sporting event, um, and that's the excitement of it, and that's why Indianapolis really, I think, is dynamic. Um, how do we do that coming out of the pandemic? We really caught a, a, a lucky break. Again, I think we made our own luck, but I'll, I'll call it a lucky break when we were in a position to host the entire NCAA yes. um, tournament. Because one, it showed Indianapolis is open for business, um, um, and people had a positive. Uh, experience and um, it's we've, 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 we can show how we've leapfrogged or use that as leverage to start hosting. You know, it sounds pedestrian, but these are a big deal. You know, regional volleyball tournaments, um, the, the NFL uh, football combine, you know, that's always in Indianapolis where you see the guys running down the strip and throwing the balls. Yes. That's all here in Indianapolis. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, we've had a lot of forward thinking leadership from way before I was on the scene. Um, but it's, it's, it's really been our calling card uh, here in Indianapolis. Yeah, what I like about this discussion and was a bit surprised about the direction we took is how much Indianapolis runs itself as a business. Because I've worked in many cities and you have the politicians on one side. I'm not saying Indianapolis doesn't have some of these problems. You have the politicians on one side and you have business almost trying to force the politicians to take action and put in place legislation that drives a business forward. And, and maybe Indianapolis's advantage is that there seems to be a consensus around what this city should be famous for. And so everyone's pulling in the same direction because it's almost as if Indianapolis is an infrastructure business. You understand what is required in an infrastructure business. You know you've got capacity. You need utilization. These are the top 20 events you must land every year. 
If you don't get them, you've got the shortfall. It's a very different way of thinking that I've rarely seen when I've spoken to people in civic roles. So it's very unique to see that kind of business principles being brought into a city. I've not seen that in many places. And I've worked with some big cities. I, no, I think that's right, Michael. And we, I think we had some some uh, some advantages uh, in the early '70s. We created a thing called Unigov. Obviously, before I was on the scene, but basically extended the city's uh, governance more or less to the county line, so that so that we didn't have a lot of the city county fights yes. or the base, uh, city rural fights. Um, I thought that was very forward um, thinking. And then I think because you know we were we were not you know they called it Nap Town for a reason. It wasn't a real active place. And I think people yes. said we got things differently. And you know, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but we formed this thing called the Capital Improvement Board, which had government and civic people on it. That was, it was, it was quasi-governmental, but it was out of the limelight where things got done. And it's a lot like a stadium authority. Um, I was the president of that for eight years. Um, it holds the lease for the Colts and the Pacers and our um, uh, convention center and so forth. But it was really, I'm not going to say desperate, but it was like, we got to do something innovative if we're gonna if we're gonna move out of the nap town. And thankfully, the city fathers, way before I was on the scene, formed this entity that brought business, government, um, philanthropy uh, to the table to 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 lay the groundwork to, to do what I think uh, created a pretty pretty dynamic and sustainable city out of not a lot. So, given all of these um, civic roles you've had, playing major roles in getting the stadium built. Uh, keeping the calls in Indianapolis, bringing the Super Bowl. What's next for you? Where do you see yourself playing a role in the future of the city? You know, you know, I, I pivoted from being involved in the city to going down to uh, my alma mater, Indiana University. I was the yes. athletic director for 12 years and actually used some of the lessons learned in Indianapolis to, I, I'd like to believe, rebuild the, 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 the culture and the infrastructure there that for a variety of reasons had fallen on hard times and bring it back to, to what I had been. Um, I'm practicing law in Indianapolis now. That gives me the chance to work on some big projects. I'm enjoying working on a new downtown soccer stadium, working on redeveloping uh, our downtown mall and some big things like that. And then, um, you know, who knows what the future holds after that. I, I, I like to keep my hand in uh, with what's going on in the city. And, and um, I've, I've, uh, I've really tried never to plan uh, too far down the road and be open to different opportunities. Some people say I can't hold a job. Um, I like <laughs> being open to doing different things. Well, what's interesting about this discussion and why I'm glad we had it is because in the United States and not just the United States, but other parts of the world as well, there's an ongoing debate about how big a role sports should have in a university. And it gets tainted and tinged into an emotional debate, but very few people talk about the business implications of having anchor franchises in sports, whether it's in a city or a university and that, you know, I don't like to use this word, but it's almost a trickle down effect. And we get into this debate about universities are only for education and they shouldn't be in a major sports programs. Universities shouldn't be building stadiums. But when we have this discussion about how a stadium serves as a catalyst for further growth, it's a totally different discussion about understanding the importance of having a major sports program. No, I think, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. I, I think um, it's a it's a it's a rallying point um, at, at a university. It's a binder of of, of both students and alumni and, and others uh, 
university managed correctly, and, and I get that's a big qualifier, but managed correctly, uh, athletics can be largely, if not completely self-sustaining um, and, and therefore not be eroding any resources that would go to arguably more important endeavors like academics, but still provide uh, that, that, that binding um, uh, mechanism, as well as a tremendous experience for the students at that university yeah. who were able to participate in collegiate athletics. And, and as a quick aside, kind of relative to our earlier discussion, that's one of the reasons why I thought Keep the Cult was so important, because few, even back then, you know, this was, you know, this was 20 years ago now or whatever, but even back then, there were fewer and fewer things that bound us together as a community, you know? Everybody would watch their own. And when I was a kid, there were four television stations. You know, now everybody's got their own television station. They yes. got their own feed. They got their own Spotify thing. They're not listening to the same albums. They're not watching Laughing or whatever's on prime time. They're streaming at their leisure. I mean, think about it, Michael. That's that's why that's why live content sports is such a valuable play, valuable thing in the marketplace. That's why networks spend billions of dollars to have live uh, sporting events because they're about the only thing left that people wouldn't rather consume on their own in their room on their laptop by themselves. Okay, so so my feeling was Indianapolis on a home on a home uh, game day was one of the few times when black, white, you know, wealthy, not so wealthy men, women are reaching across the aisle, high fiving each other because they're brought together. I know that sounds a little Pollyannish, but I believe it in my marrow that 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 it's it's a very important binder in communities and and maybe to a little bit of a lesser extent, but still uh, a similar binder on college campuses. Well, I don't think it's Pollyannish. If you study any organization, whether it's uh, and cities, what makes people stay in a city? There must be some pride in the city. What makes people want to invest in a city? There must be some pride in the city. So. It's how do you bring back pride to the citizens of the city? And sports, especially when you've got an NFL team competing every year, year in, year out, gives people a chance to feel some pride. So it's not a bad way to think about it. It's actually a very clever way to think about it because one of the hallmarks of leadership is how do you instill a sense of purpose, excitement, enthusiasm in your employees? And if you think about every citizen of Indianapolis as in inverted commas, an employee, they make the choice whether they wanna be there or they wanna leave the city, do they invest in this? Do they accept the tax increases to pay for things? You have to give them something that makes them enthusiastic. So I don't think it's a bad way to think about it. And actually this podcast has really got me thinking more about the economics and business of sport. Because when we think about sports teams, we just watch the game. I mean, I'm watching the game this weekend, but we don't understand the, the deep thinking that went in behind the scenes to make this all possible. No, exactly, exactly right. It, it, you know, it, it, is, it is a very... Uh, deliberate, well thought out uh, industry, um, and um, you know it, it, they're they're very high, very highly sought after teams. So if a, if a city stumbles and uh, loses the uh, uh, confidence of the team, there'll be there'll be five cities ready to pick them up off the market. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, we've seen it happen all the time with NFL teams moving, NBA teams moving, and so on. There must be an enormous amount of pressure for the city to perform, which is something, again, citizens and people don't really think about the pressures that the civic leadership and business community has to handle to keep the team there 
to keep this strategy in place to be a destination for athletics in America. That's exactly right, Michael. And, and perversely, perhaps, um, sometimes it's a harder sell when you've got the team than when you're chasing the team, right? So one of our challenges when we were trying to generate the public support to, uh, to keep the Colts um, was, was to emphasize to people what the place would be like without the Colts. Because believe me, there's a lot of people who are only too yes. ready to say, why are we subsidizing millionaires, millionaire players and billionaire owners? Yes. Keep the team. This is what I love the most keep the team, but don't pay that much for it. You know, I used to always say, hey, look, if you want to take the position that um, sports aren't worth enough to uh, keep the team, okay, I disagree with you, but that's an intellectually honest position. But don't take the position that, yeah, we need the team, but don't pay that much for it. Because the market tells us how much we have to pay for it. And it's either worth it, you know, or it's, or it's not. And I would uh, always show people cities, that got up on their high horse, their soapbox and said, I'm the mayor and I'm not going to be held up by the team, whether that's Houston, Cleveland, yes. St. Louis, Baltimore, they all lost their teams and they all paid more money to get a new team than they would have paid to keep their old team. And I talk about that all the time, other than saying, guess what? If Indianapolis loses a team, we're not going to get a new team. Because the NFL doesn't like us having a team in the middle of all these other team markets. So I thought the stakes were high. As an incumbent team holder, sometimes it's a little more challenging to uh, make sure people understand, you know, what they have as opposed to what they're ch chasing. Um, but the Colts have been an important part of our community. And I think most NFL franchises are important parts of their respective teams. That's a great explanation. And you said something very, very important that I think is always gets lost in the debate when you you look at the salaries played for, paid for NFL plays and so on. The market sets the price. If Indianapolis wants to keep the Colts in Indianapolis, it has to be offering something more attractive than the five other cities in the United States are going to be offering the Colts. Because it's like any asset. Whatever the market is willing to pay for, it becomes the price. And you have to compete on the price another city is offering. So that always gets lost in the debate because I've heard this many times whereby People say, well, we don't want to subsidize a billionaire. Why do we have to give him a tax break? Why do we have to give this team a tax break? Why do we have to spend so much? But it's, you're not doing anything for him. He simply has, or her, he or her simply has an asset in the market, which they're then looking for the best home. And you're actually competing against the other cities. It has, it has something to do with the owner, but not a lot to do with the owner. As long as there are other bidders in the market, that's the people you need to look out for. 100% right. I the owners don't so much look at themselves as competitors. They look at themselves as partners. You know, the NFL. Absolutely. Is yeah, basically, an NFL team is like any asset. It's got a number of buyers, and the buyers set the price. The market sets the price. The buyer can do whatever he wants. He can inflate it, do whatever he wants. But if nobody's willing to pay the price, then he can't do anything, right? So when, when you are putting together contingency plans and strategies, you must be paying a lot of attention to which are the cities that could potentially pull the cults away? And what did they have on the table that we need to counter with? 100% right. You know, there's a lot of emotion um, with, you know, sports teams and such, but, but, it, but, it, but at its essence, it's, it's an economic analysis. It's an economic analysis. And I think it always gets lost in the market. It gets lost in the discussions. I'm very happy we had this podcast. Fred, that was an amazing discussion. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's great. That was fun. I was uh, 
hadn't really delved much into that, and then it was really a fun exercise. So I, I appreciate uh, your interest in that. You know, I really enjoyed it. I'm always interested in the economics that goes behind these decisions because it always gets lost in the debate, especially now when people are screaming in a bar about which team is going to win and which team is going to lose and so on. Before I go off, I must say that um, Indianapolis is very lucky to have someone like you and your family, which has spent so many times, so many decades investing continuously to make the city what it is today. So I think, you know, if more people were like you, we wouldn't have so many inner city problems and so on because it comes down to the citizens of that city who are going to step up and say, we got to do something. We can't wait for help from outside. Well, I appreciate that, Michael. I, I will tell you, and I'm, I'm, I'm earnest about this. I, I feel like I'm the lucky one to uh, live in Indianapolis where they value people that um, want to be involved and want to do things and maybe not be the mayor, maybe not be a city councilman, but, but from a civic uh, situation as a, as a volunteer, we have a great history of that. And, and, and I'm the beneficiary. I stand on the shoulders of the people that went before. Really appreciate the opportunity. And I'll just mention, you know, I've got the, the book, Making Your Own Luck from a Skid Row Bar to Rebuilding IU Athletics that talks, the Super Bowl was one example of sort of how we exploited preparation meeting opportunity. And if your folks are interested in, as I know they are, leadership and building esprit de corps and, and, and being a value-based organization, um, I would, I would commend that to them. I know I'm a little biased, uh, but I think there's some uh, interesting vignettes um, over a course of a career that, that, that might have some interest. Well, I think it would because this podcast is basically a summary, a very brief summary of what's in the book. And I learned a lot. And I like this discussion because oftentimes when we talk about entertainment, we just completely forget about the microeconomics and we forget about the infrastructure decisions and we forget that it takes decades to put in place the plan which culminates with the Super Bowl and everyone gets happy, but they don't understand all of the decisions that had to happen over 20, 30 years. Well, I'd love the chance to delve into that. And you've been uh, very generous with your time. And, I, and I'm glad you were uh, so uh, informed about the kind of things cities go through to get an economic identity. So it was a, it was a really fun uh, interaction. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care, Fred. We'll be in touch and we'll definitely have you on the show sometime later. Excellent. Thanks so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.